Welcome to Bold New Breed. Today, I have the pleasure of being with someone that I met over 10 years ago. His name is Gregoire Sharp Sivat, and we met on an advisory job I had in a company where he was working, an organization headquartered in, in France. And we got to know each other a bit then. Gregoire has had quite a change in his career over the last 10 years, as I have also. And so we're just touching base again. Gregoire, could you say a few words about yourself and where you are today? Sure. Hi, Jane. It's so good to be back in touch. And uh, so, well, where am I today? I'm in Dubai, no longer in Paris. That's, that's one of the changes that you mentioned. And who I am, I'm, I'm a blend. I'm a versatile individual at work and outside. And uh, if we think about work, my, my background is predominantly in communications, marketing, digital, but also transformation. And more recently, I've plugged all of this under the umbrella of uh, customer experience and, and actually design, uh, which I think are overarching uh, approaches that help support the first ones I've worked on. And over the years, I've uh, had the pleasure to work in different industries, different contexts, different countries, you know, from telcos to industrials, to government, to startup, to luxury, retail, hospitality. I've always been on the hunt for that blend because I, I think there's a true value in exposing yourself to many different contexts that, that gives you a, a richer point of view and a catalog of, uh, let's say, situations to, to leverage. Yeah, that sounds like you have probably seen a lot of different things under the angle of customer experience. When I interviewed you back in 2016 for a report I was writing, the focus of our interview was what do younger people expect from the workplace that's different from the traditional way of working? And one of the things that you said, and I'm quoting you, you said young people challenge traditional processes and organizations. Why is their question? And that's just the way it is, young man. Simply won't work as an answer anymore. So what, what, why do you think young people challenge traditional ways of working so strongly? I just noticed they, they do. And I just noticed that, you know, generation after generations, we've had the luxury of thinking about work slightly differently. We've probably had the opportunity to start choosing amongst many more options. Uh, we've surely had the opportunity to witness through the great progress in technology and communication what the world had to offer. I think that that forces, that pushes people, that helps people uh, challenging what, what's, uh, what's happening in their immediate vicinity when they see so much more outside and when they also pay more and more attention to their own well-being, you know, wellness being such a huge trend, they, they start to to really make sure, they try to make sure that they're focused on the right thing. I guess that's why they're doing it. At least that's why I am doing it. That's interesting what you say about wellness. And we won't go into detail now, but one thing I discovered, not, not back in 2016, but in 2018, when I did the first gig mindset survey, was that I had a list of behaviors ranging a spectrum from traditional to gig mindset. And the people who scored more to the gig mindset and self-assessed themselves as having a better work-life balance. And people who have self-assessed themselves at the lower end, I asked the question in the survey, do you think you or higher gig mindset people have a better work balance? They all believed 
almost without exception, that the higher your gig mindset score, the better your work-life balance would be. And the key thing is because as a gig mindsetter, you have more freedom that you've given yourself and more control over your work situation, which you have taken yourself, uh, and therefore greater satisfaction. Does, does that make sense to you? Absolutely. I think it's, it's a lot about what you said, get, getting back some level of control, being able to choose some of the, some of the options. So when you ask why, even when you're not working in the gig mode, but within a company, when you ask why, it's your way of ensuring that you chose or you choose again, this job again and again. It's like you keep making that decision to stay with that company, to keep focused on that job, right? It's not yeah. one decision you made on the day you accepted an offer and you got hired. It's a decision you may regularly ask yourself. So when you say why, it's a way of making sure that there's a fit uh, between the the values of the company, your own values, the, the topics that it's focused on and what you want to be focused on. And it's somehow about that control. You won't have the control a CEO has over the topics you're working on. Mm. But you want to make sure that from the receiving end, you still ask the question to, to cross-check. Yes. And uh, so the another statement you made in the 2016 interview is that you said the ideal Gen Y organization dynamic is based on sharing expertise and, and this is the interesting part, working in cultures of smart ad hoc partnerships. So you're talking about some sort of self-grouping, self-managing temporary group working together. Have I understood you correctly? Absolutely. And I think this is where the intent is there but it's not done the right way. I see it everywhere and everywhere. There's a huge confusion between what I'm describing here as the ideal, and I still believe it is, uh, and the word genuine uh, and partnerships are super critical there, and and what we have been calling and practicing under agile or all this kind of ways of working, which have been massive misinterpretations for, for me or massive myths where people are not in charge of anything really uh, they, they don't really have uh, a clear setup and you need to go faster and you need to put things in parallel, etc. I don't think that works. I think what works is genuine collaboration and partnership. In partnership, you have this notion of mutual benefit as well. It's not just agitation. It's not just uh, freestyle. It's where it makes sense. Right? Mm. I don't know if I'm clear in saying so, but I still believe it's the right way of approaching things. And, and I think organizations have tried to show some element of, uh, uh, you know, um, agility and, and, and killing the norms and, and changing their ways of working. But it's often been done in a very caricatural way, not a productive one. And I think it's often being done in, in specific pockets True. in the organization. Yeah. It's not spread across the organization. And, uh, yeah. That's something I'd like to talk to you. One more question first. Before we talk about how to scale a new way of working, I just want to get your take again on a thing you said back in 2016, which is you said that young people are looking for inspiring leaders and they want to be judged. The young people want to be judged based on what they contribute, not their seniority in the organization. And I think that's a big issue. Do you yeah. still think that's the case in a lot of organizations that people are judged based on seniority rather than what they're actually doing? Absolutely. I still think importantly, it's, it, it's there in many, many places. That's one of the realizations I had since is we have the tendency to think that a certain tenure in our organization automatically makes you a potential leader, manager. And that's mm -hmm. absolutely not true. I think 
being a good leader, being a good manager doesn't start with how many years have I worked in that company. The price of this loyalty is that I get a team to manage. This is a big, big misunderstanding. I've seen horrible managers with 25 years of experience. They were experts <laughs> on the job and they were the worst at leadership. So that's the other side of what I said back then, right? We want to see great leaders and we want to be judged on what would break to the organization. But I still see, again, wrong leaders being leaders simply because of them uh, having been there for too, for, for, I was going to say too long, for long enough. And expertise being a secondary topic, to be honest. Uh, I, I still see a lot of those, not everywhere, but in, in a lot of places still. And I think it has to do with what's the skill set of a leader and, and being able to recruit against that skill set or to identify those leaders based on that. Um, but again, the example has to come fr fr from the top. What needs to come is the realization that what they bring to the organization isn't necessarily correct le leadership. They bring expertise, they bring the legacy, they bring the understanding of the market, and that's all super critical. But they mm -hmm. shouldn't be trusted automatically, simply due to seniority, trusted with leadership abilities. I think it's a matter of making sure that we refocus the value they bring to their experience, their understanding of the market, you know, the ability to train others, the ability to, to onboard others. But leadership just isn't necessarily uh, simply a matter of being here for long enough. So they should stay, but do something different. So what do you think makes a good leader that Gregoire, how can we see, or what does, what, how can we see that someone's doing a good job? So I would say that a good leader is someone who, who doesn't try to be, um, you know, as great or better than their team members in terms of the expertise, right? It's, it's first and foremost, the ability to learn from them as well, because then your role doesn't become a command and control role, it becomes a listen and learn uh, mode. And that's, that's the key, I think, of good leaderships. So that switch mm -hmm. from command and control to listening and learning. And you become an orchestrator. You become a, a, a leader in the, in the you know, first degree sense of it, as in pointing at the direction that is chosen based on the intel and the expertise of your team. So a good leader is someone who associates their team with the decision-making and with finding the direction to go uh, towards in the first place. So inclusivity in the sense of giving access to the strategic uh, approach definition. Uh, and a good leader is also someone who's got the back of their team in terms of uh, being accountable. So just because you say that as a good leader, you don't own all of the expertise doesn't mean you have no accountability and it's the responsibility <laughs> of your team members for making bad, bad moves, right? Uh, it, it, that, that trust is manifested in the account, the ability to take accountability and to stand up uh, for for the team. Um, so this, for me, are some of the some of the fundamentals. And uh, a good leader to stay effective in what they do also needs, in my view, to, to step out sometimes and and reflect. Uh, so being a good leader requires you to make the time for your own approach to management, to leadership, to evolve. So lifelong learning on this, like take the time to train yourself, take the time to, to read about it, to have a point of view on leadership, on management, and also on, of course, your area of focus. If you're a chief marketing officer, you need to take the time to think about, you know, what is marketing today? How has it evolved? Because then you also have an angle and I think your teams expect that from you as well, that you bring a differentiated view. Uh, and that you're not just trying to do the same job as your predecessor. These would be some of the common traits. 
and someone that works maybe finally always in the interest of the organization. So we can't put a hundred percent of our egos, uh, uh, you know, out of the picture. It's just impossible, but, uh, clearly you remove as much as possible and you work in the interest of the organization, the greater good. So, and you notice those people immediately when they find solutions rather than ways of managing their own agendas. And, and this is much more inspiring to follow. Uh, as a team member than someone who's fighting for themselves. Because if they're fighting for themselves, you know they'll be gone at some point and they'll be gone for, for what's better for them. They won't be including you in the bigger picture. I, I agree with everything you've said. That, that leads me to the question of how can an organization move in that direction? And you talked about HR people being able to recruit, looking for these qualities. I think these qualities are pretty hard to identify when you are recruiting someone that you don't know. And I had a, yeah. quite an interesting conversation with a guy and he talked about the way he goes about recruiting people by creating a situation, describe a situation to them and then say, what would you do in this case? Who would you involve in this case? And putting them in situations and then seeing what their answers are. And he attributed more importance to that than what was on the person's CV. And that was a good idea. I thought I think that was a good way of doing it. Have you yeah. seen examples or do you have things that come to mind? So it's not necessarily specifically just yet in terms of how to bring this to life in terms of recruitment, but I think at the broad level, what I'm sensing right now, what I'm thinking right now is that what organizations need to go in the right direction is slow down a little bit in terms of taking the time for these changes to happen. What, what I've experienced in many places is an extreme level of ambition from a strategy mm -hmm. perspective and extreme eagerness to cut corners, shorten stuff, fast track it. And inevitably, this leads to lower value being delivered. And that's true on this topic as well. If your ambition is truly to, to become a better organization, more meaningful for your talent, more um, you know, on point, more in sync with where the world is headed, then you need to make the time, take the time to do uh, the right things and launching a culture observatory or a culture program or transformation program, just in terms of ticking that box, just won't do, right? You, you need to do it meaningfully. So taking the time, being genuine about it and stop contradicting yourselves in terms of asking your teams to do it, to change, but at the same time, keeping them back old ways of managing their timelines. And the last point maybe is therefore the culture of investing and investing well, uh, you know, the same way you should be wise about managing your investments when you acquire a new capability, a new company, et cetera, you should be wise in terms of how, uh, you approach investment in your people and in, in your transformation from a cultural standpoint. Yeah. So choosing the best, choosing the best consulting, if you need the consulting support, uh, choosing the best leaders for that. If it, if it needs to take six months more to find the better person or one year to find the better uh, approach, take that time rather than trying it and, uh, at a low uh, level of delivery. You don't really get to do that twice. The example you gave is a, is a good one. Uh, if we think that talent is less about the track record on paper and more about an attitude, indeed, the way you check for that attitude cannot simply be a glance at the resume and people telling you their five minutes elevator pitch about themselves. It's in situ 
uh, demonstrations. I think the example you gave is a good illustration. Each function should, each, each, everyone really, whoever has the opportunity in the organization should ask themselves, can I tweak my process? Can I tweak my approach in order to, to see things that I kept hidden for so long and that actually bring much more value? I think it's not obvious for a lot of people to make that change. It's a lot easier to look at a CV and ask questions about past experience. And um, past experience is important, of course, but past experience doesn't necessarily give you uh, the best approach to dealing with the future or the present, I would say. Uh, A lot of people rely, a lot of organizations rely too much on benchmarking. And then the question is benchmarking with whom? I mean, you don't necessarily today want to benchmark with your traditional competitors because there are a lot of new competitors coming out of the space. And so the whole idea of benchmarking is becoming more a question of you're looking at the past. So then the question is, what do you look at when we're looking at an uncertain future? And it becomes down to, I think, attitude and behaviors more than actual titles and roles inside organizations. You know, what you're saying makes me think of two more things. One is for people to be able to change their way of looking at this, challenge the way they, they, they recruit, etc. It takes the right incentive as well. So we can't just blame people for being lazy. You need to figure out what triggers that desire to change, you know. How are they incentivized today? When you look at how people get their, their bonuses today in an organization, if we think about just a financial incentive for a second, you know, in the very way it's done, can those objectives welcome topics that are not about, you know, just hard KPIs in terms of numbers, but maybe uh, really attitudinal KPIs or, or, or KPI around your ability to change your own approach? That would be a better incentive. If, if I am told that what matters is not the, the vision I have about my job, but simply getting the job done, then I don't have the incentive at all mm. uh, or not enough. And the second thing uh, is for organizations to be able to look at the right topics, to look at the future the right way. I think there are two keys. And, and I would love to speak to you about the role of management consultancies in this because they can clearly either play a positive one or a very negative or detrimental yeah, one. Absolutely. One is muscling that decision muscle back, you know, that many CEOs have given up on. And so this atrophy of the decision-making muscle which is oftentimes delegated, you know, to, to external players because it's more comfortable, because it's reassuring, because many reasons. I think that's key. Until you get that muscle to grow back, you're not going to have the ability to sense make. I, I, I followed that very interesting uh, course at the MIT on leadership. And there's a framework and, and there are five key components of what leadership is. And one of the key ones for me is called sense making, making sense of your own environment. And obviously, if, if you delegate to external consultancies, not all of them, of course, but the traditional ones, this role of looking around and figuring out what to do, you lose your own ability to sense make with your own eyes. The analogy I use is the GPS. Uh, you, you may have noticed how we're so used to using GPSs now that even for a, a journey or a trip that we know that we've done before, we'll use it sometimes, you know, we'll use it. And we pretty much have the same options, Waze, Google Maps. They'll give you the same potential routes, the cheapest, the fastest, the most scenic. Yeah. 
you stop looking around when you drive. You look at the GPS. You, you no longer notice the name of that road. Oh, there's a restaurant there. Or I, next time I could try and, and see what that path leads to. So you're no longer sense-making. You've completely delegated this. And that is a gap you're creating between you and your environment and the future and the way the world is going. So I think that's a very fundamental thing organizations have to do. And they have the resources internally most of the time to support them in this sense-making. Uh, it doesn't always have to be uh, outsourced. And finally, the last point is another huge opportunity is to look at things with the multi-lens and, and thinking that multidisciplinary approaches are stronger, right? Uh, so, so if I'm an HR professional and I want to interrogate my way of recruiting talent, maybe I need to seek the help of a sociologist, of a few psychologists or people who have a view on certain areas, certain disciplines that I did not consider before, but I can shed a specific light on what I'm looking at. And, and, and in the company where I was working when we met, I was so happy to see an organization that was 130 years old looking at building disruptive innovation capabilities uh, and hiring, it's an engineering-based company, let's say, hiring talent that had nothing to do with you know, hard sciences that, that were like ethnographs, sociologists, et cetera, architects, designers. And, and they've benefited a lot from that multidisciplinary approach. And that is another key to be looking at the right topics and approaching future in a much more meaningful way. I think you've pointed out a lot of very key things, in particular, the multidisciplinary approach. I think that's really important. That wasn't in my notes. It's actually on a post-it on my mirror. You can't see my office, yeah. but it's uh, one of the subjects I'm developing in this, in my new book. Okay. Uh, that's, multidisciplines, that's not the digital and the HR and the communication, but beyond that into a lot of other disciplines. So that really hit me. It, I think you and I are on a similar way of thinking right now. It's very interesting. Well, thank sure. you very much, Gregoire, for your time. It's been a real pleasure talking with you today. Thank you, um, Jane. Thank you. I think we will not wait 10 years before we have our next conversation. I would like to invite the people listening to this podcast to check out my website, olinebreed.com. And you can see other episodes in the podcast. And you can learn about my book, The Gig Mindset Advantage. And you can also find a link and some explanation of a community, an online community I've created called the Breed Community for Gig Mindsets. And uh, we're having some really interesting conversations. So get in touch if you'd like to join. Thank you again, everyone, for listening. Thank you again, Craig Loire. And uh, see you all soon. Okay, see you bye. Soon.